Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's remarks in a press conference yesterday in which he questioned the coincidence that the Russian withdrawal from Kherson happened after the U.S. election results did not go the way Putin and his propagandists were counting on, as they too expected the red wave. Joining us from Finland for a European reaction to the likelihood that Republican plans to cut aid to Ukraine will be shelved because of the GOP's tenuous hold on the House is Alexander Stubb, a professor and director of the School of Transnational Governance at the European University Institute. From 2008 to 2016, he served as Prime Minister of Finland and also Finance Minister, Foreign Minister, Trade and Europe Minister. He also served as a member of the European Parliament, the chairman of the Finnish National Coalition Party, and vice president of the European Investment Bank. And we will discuss how Europe is adapting to the cutoff of Russian energy and moving towards a green energy future. Then we'll examine the cliffhanger races in Arizona and Nevada that could determine who controls the United States Senate, as well as the congressional races in California that could determine who controls the House. Joining us is Sasha Abramsky, who writes regularly for The Nation and is the author of several books, including Inside Obama's Brain, Breadline USA, American Furies, The American Way of Poverty, and most recently, Little Wonder, the fabulous story of Lottie Dodd, the world's first female sports superstar. We will discuss his latest article at The Nation, Republicans are big losers, but they may still be a threat. Then finally, we'll address the other big story to emerge from the midterm elections other than the absence of the red wave, and that is how brazen Republican gerrymandering is the main reason the GOP will probably take the House. Joining us is David Daly, a senior fellow for Fair Vote and the author of Rat Eft, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy, which helped spark a drive to reform gerrymandering. Dave's second book, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy chronicles the victories and defeats in state efforts to reform elections and uphold voting rights. A digital media fellow at the Wilson Center for the Humanities, he's the former editor-in-chief of Salon.com and the former CEO and publisher of the Connecticut News Project, and we will discuss his article at The Nation, The GOP's Bid to Claim a Rigged House Majority, Voters Repudiated the GOP Congressional Agenda, Court-sanctioned gerrymanders made sure it didn't matter. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now from Finland is Alexander Stubb, a professor and director of the School of Transnational Governance at the European University Institute. From 2008 to 2016, he served as Prime Minister of Finland, also as Finance Minister, Foreign Minister, Trade and Europe Minister, and he also served as a member of the European Parliament, the Chairman of the Finnish National Coalition Party, and Vice President of the European Investment Bank. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Alexander Stubb. Thanks a lot for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Alexander. And yesterday at a press conference, President Biden said that Russia's decision to withdraw from Kherson shows that its military has some real problems. He also went on to observe that it was very interesting that Moscow had waited until after the election to announce the withdrawal. Now, if the Republicans were to take the House, which is clearly what the president was inferring there, they have suggested they would cut military aid to Ukraine. However, they'll probably have a pretty thin majority and may not be able to get the votes. But if they were to cut aid to Ukraine, what would be the European reaction? Well, I'm actually quite confident that that will not take place. I mean, there seems to be fairly strong, strong uh, cross-party support uh, to continue to uh, help uh, Ukraine. Of course, the United States has been in the driver's seat when it comes to financing the war, providing armaments and money, uh, and Europe has given strong flank support but not reached the same levels. So I'm sure that at the rest of the day there'll be a comfortable solution found, uh, and the strong support that we've seen coming from the West, namely the United States, the European Union and the United Kingdom, will continue. So it does seem that there's some, uh, just to follow on from the president's remark, that that the Russian military seems to have some real problems. It's almost like there's a civil war going on between the Prigozhin uh, Wagner group and Hadirov, the Chechen warlord, and the nationalists um, that have some influence over Russian state media and the regular military. Um, There's almost, you know, there's quite a lot of sniping going on. the chairman of the Joint Chiefs here in the United States has just uh, and, uh, made the remark that Russia has suffered over 100,000 killed and wounded. What's your sense, since you're right there up against uh, the Russian border in Finland, of the status? Is there a possibility that the Russian military could collapse? And was that why they wanted to get out of Kherson to avoid another humiliation? Well, I don't know about collapse, but of course the performance of the Russian military has been underwhelming and if you I mean even look at three key battles if you will first one was the battle of Kiev uh, Putin and Russia lost that they weren't able to march in as they had expected second one was on the battle of Kharkiv they lost that and had to go out now the third one was a battle on Kherson and they're all gone out so I mean the Russian military is in a very weak state and I mean I I came sort of <laughs> face-to-face with the Russian military when I mediated peace in the war in Georgia in 2008 when I was foreign minister. Um, And, you know, we all thought that they're able to do their magic. But here we're seeing that the Ukrainians are able to push back, of course, with a strong support uh, from the West. And, And I think it's always, I mean, it's important to understand that it's always much easier to a certain extent to fight and defend your existence rather than to attack when you really don't know why you're doing it. And I think that's one of the key reasons why the Russian military is in a mess. If you add on to that, that it's a very corrupt military, they've been selling off equipment, whether it's on intelligence or spying, um, they've been very poor at managing their uh, military material and they're having to start using older equipment. So. Yeah, the Russian military is surprisingly weak. And I, I think the latest report I saw today from um, British intelligence is that, you know, Russia could actually lose this war come next summer. 
So is this reverberating within Russia itself in terms of Putin's control? Obviously, there's a massive propaganda apparatus. Yeah. It looks like, like Prigozhin may be even trying to make a political run. So one of the odd things about Russia, as far as I can tell, is that Putin actually, in the, in the pantheon of Russian politics, Putin actually may be a moderating force. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you never know, of course, I mean, throughout Russian revolutions and history, usually you end up with someone uh, who is a little bit more brutal, a little bit stronger uh, than the previous guy. But, you know, without any kind of speculation, I, I think it's quite safe to say that, uh, you know, the tide is turning against Putin in Moscow as well. If we look at the latest opinion polls and support for the war, uh, they've come down and people actually want to get out. And I, I think it's kind of a natural reaction because when you have mobilization, in other words, when you try to have men, some women, but mostly men, taken off the street to go uh, and fight a war, which in many ways seems senseless and people don't understand it. And if your losses are up to a 100,000, it's going to have reverberations. We don't know what's going to happen in the long run, but Certainly, you could argue that even now, the war is not going Putin's way domestically, which usually has been the case, because Russians, like anyone, are quite good at rallying around the flag when it comes to wartime. But this tide is now turning. So in Finland, of course, you've had an exodus of uh, young Russians and also in Georgia and Kazakhstan, etc. In a curious way, though, these are the sort of best and brightest, are they not? And many of them are probably more on the on the liberal side. So from Putin's point of view, he's probably not sorry to see these people go. What's your reading on that? Well, it depends on the figures that you look at and the figures that you believe in. I mean, at some stage, a couple of weeks into the mobilization, um, there were reports that you had about 200,000 men that had been mobilized, about 700,000 that had escaped uh, through various routes. Um, and, you know, are they liberals or not? It, it's difficult to say, but it's a very difficult situation, of course, for the young or middle-aged men that uh, have been recruited. I mean, what to do in that situation? I mean, because they're risking their lives in, in leaving the country, and they're also risking their lives uh, if they go to the front. So, you know, it's, it's six or one, half a dozen or the other, and I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing for Putin. But I think if you look at the overall picture, you just have to conclude that, uh, you know, mobilization was sort of a last desperate attempt to try to turn the tide. And even that one has failed. So things are not looking good from Putin's perspective. So given that Putin has weaponized oil and gas and now the flow of gas from Russia has reduced considerably, I think it's down to about 7% of the requirements in Finland now, there's talk of, what, sharing the saunas with your neighbors? I mean, it sounds like what happened here in the 60s where the hippies, hippies would say, you know, save water, shower with a friend. Well, I think that's probably slightly colored journalism floating around somewhere <laughs> in the, in, 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 on the Internet. I mean, you know, of course, we're all into the energy saving mode. And uh, the latest I heard is that I think in the month of September and October, people used about 8% less energy than what they normally do. Uh, but people in Finland also feel quite safe. And the reason for that is that over the years, we actually diversified uh, our energy portfolio. 
So instead of being reliant on Russian gas, uh, yes, we were 100% reliant on Russian gas, but that was only 5% of our energy portfolio. And none of that actually went to households. It just went to uh, industry. So when they turned off the gas pipelines, we were able to switch to alternative grids. So that's why you know we've always been developing nuclear power plants. We have uh, a lot of renewables. Um, we get our energy uh, from elsewhere as well. So, you know, we in Finland, we're quite relaxed. Uh, sauna is a holy ritual. So, I don't, you know, people, I, I think, I, I think Finns have like two saunas per household. So one in the country place and one at home. And I think the ones in the country place are usually run by wood. So we're okay right. on that front. Well, there is the downer degree campaign, right? And the government is encouraging people to use stairs instead of elevators and ride a bicycle to work. Yeah. And I mean, of course, you see, I I, I live most of my time in Florence nowadays. uh, And I think there's very much that same mentality as well. So say at our university, for instance, um, you know, the summers can be boiling hot uh, in Florence. So air conditioning was turned off end of August completely and um, the heating hasn't come on until now sometime in mid-november and even that only in a rationing way so yeah people are wearing woolies and um, you know former italian prime minister mario draghi who i respect a lot he, he had quite a good saying in the middle of the summer he said well you know you can choose between air conditioning or peace uh, and i think that's very much the mentality and pe- people are People are willing to, you know, push the bucket. So in, in that sense, it's not a bad thing for the environment or for climate change either that, you know, we reduce our energy consumption. Uh, how much that will help in the long run, I don't know. But I, I, I think it's a move in the right direction. Well, 11 countries, including Finland, are building or expanding offshore terminals to process liquid natural gas. Finland is also building a terminal. How long, how long before that's online? I don't remember right now. I mean, I, I was prime minister when we, first of all, you know, built a pipeline between Estonia and Finland. I think that was very important. Um, and, and then there was a decision taken on, 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 on the floating ones. And I don't know the latest state of play on that, unfortunately. Right. What about the possibility, given that the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines were blown up and it seems it was done by Russia, there was some concerns recently in Norway that there were FSB characters caught with drones, etc., uh, flying over Norwegian offshore terminals and other and gas pipelines, etc. Is there a possibility of some sabotage? I mean, you've got a huge flotilla of LNG ships off the Spanish coast waiting to fill up the terminals in Europe as they store up for the winter. Is there any possibility of an escalation in that regard? Sure thing. I mean, you know, that's part of hybrid warfare. And you, know, you mentioned it earlier. In today's world, it's very difficult to you know, draw a line between war and peace because everything has basically been weaponized. You know, you can use energy uh, as a weapon by attacking, say, um, infrastructure or just by uh, stopping the flow of, say, gas. You can use information. You can use technology. You can even use currency. Uh, as a weapon. Um, And that's why we do a lot of hybrid warfare exercises as well in this neck of the woods, actually together with NATO and with American troops uh, as well. And, 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 you know, just the fact that, you know, the Norwegians announce this type of uh, malignant uh, activity or malign activity 
um, by the Russians close to their energy is just to basically send a message, guys, we know what you're doing and, and don't even try it. Well, here in the United States, it's hard to understand why the Republicans, or at least a percentage of Republicans, want to pull the plug on Ukraine and don't seem to care or don't seem to be worried about the idea of helping Putin win a war, which would then permanently destabilize Europe. Is there a similar constituency apart from, say, Orban in Hungary in Europe? Well, no, I mean... I mean, to start off with, I don't want to get in, involved in you know, American domestic politics and who is, who is right, who is wrong on this. I mean, I've also seen Republicans very strongly supporting whatever action and activity is taken to support Ukraine. But, you know, the, we, we do have two camps in, in Europe. One is what's been generally called the justice camp and the other one is the peace camp. So the peace camp is the one that, you know, is, is slightly the more appeasing one, and which basically says that, uh, we need to stop the war and, and find a peace agreement as soon as possible, no matter what the cost uh, from a territorial perspective. Uh, and then the justice camp says that, no, we need to push this uh, all the way uh, to the end, because the only thing that Putin understands is, is power. I actually think that, you know, the only path to peace is, is the battlefield. That's the sad reality of the situation, and Putin simply has to be defeated. But there's a concern that the more he's pushed into a corner, the more, I mean, he's already rattled the nuclear sabre. I don't know whether that's just posturing and an effort to weaken resolve in Europe. But are there concerns in Europe that if he gets pushed into a corner, apparently they're, you know, talking about refurbishing bomb shelters and stuff like that. Whether that's well, again, you know, we yeah. have to tone down the rhetoric on this. I mean, it, it's how would I put this, you know, diplomatically? It, it, it's quite easy to talk about these things in in Los Angeles, but when you have a one thousand three hundred and forty kilometer border with Russia, you know, you don't want to escalate, not even through rhetoric. And that's why I think it's very important that you know the United States and the rest of us keep on talking with the Russians when it comes to you know, the use of nuclear arms. Uh, Putin is in the corner. There's no question about that. He's used chemical weapons before in, in, in Syria, but there's no point for us to excite him to do anything more. So how do you think Europe will persevere through this winter? I mean, so far the weather's been pretty kind, has it not? Yeah, it, I, I think we'll do fine. Uh, you know, Germany, which is obviously one of the larger countries in Europe, has piled up their stocks uh, of gas up to about you know ninety five percent. So, so they should be on the safe side. I think the question is how do we transition and you know what the next winter will look like. But I would say so far uh, so good. It's just very important not to get you know war fatigue and continue to support ukraine and make sure that um, putin is is driven out so just in closing you mentioned next winter that may be more difficult than this winter but is there a possibility in this transition that uh, europe will lead the way i mean the cop 27 talks are going on now in egypt and you would think that it's, you know, it takes a while to put LNG terminals up and they're still a fossil fuel. What about wind and solar? Are they getting... Um, solar may be more problematic given the weather, but wind would seem to be a, an alternative. Is there a shift underway? Well, there's definitely a shift. I mean, there's a stated goal which is called Fit for 55, which basically is an attempt to make Europe carbon neutral by 2050. 
And although we will uh, be dirtier, in other words, more CO2-based, coal-based um, and gas-based uh, in the short run, I think what Russia has now done is a favor for the green movement in, in forcing uh, to disrupt the system and come up with alternative solutions ranging from nuclear to wind. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, Alexander Stubb. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And again, I've been speaking with Alexander Stubb, who is a professor and director of the School of Transnational Governance at the European University Institute from 2008 to 2016. He served as Prime Minister of Finland and also as Finance Minister, Foreign Minister, Trade and Europe Minister, and he also served as a member of the European Parliament, the chairman of the Finnish National Coalition Party, and Vice President of the European Investment Bank. We're going to take a brief station break back examining the cliffhanger races in Arizona and Nevada that could determine who controls the U.S. Senate, as well as the congressional races in California that could determine who controls the House. If we make it through December Everything's gonna be alright, I know It's the coldest time of winter And I shiver when I see the falling snow Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Sasha Abramsky, who writes regularly for The Nation and is the author of several books, including Inside Obama's Brain, Breadline USA, American Furies, The American Way of Poverty, and most recently, Little Wonder, the fabulous story of Lottie Dodd, the world's first female sports superstar. And his latest article at The Nation is, Republicans are big losers, but they may still be a threat. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sasha Abramsky. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And I find it very ironic that the fate of who will control the House rests upon election results for congressional candidates in the bluest of blue states, New York and California. How did that happen? Yeah, I, I think that happened sort of almost by default. There was an assumption that the Republicans were going to gain 30, 40 seats. That was the sort of conventional wisdom. And the Democrats were going to lose across the board. So they were going to lose in blue states, but they were also going to lose in red states. They were going to lose in Rust Belt states with moderate candidates, and they were going to lose in um, suburban Los Angeles districts and so on and so forth. Um, what ended up happening was the Republican red wave just didn't materialize. There was too much anger about the Dobbs decision. There was too much anger about the January 6th insurrection. Um, and I think there was probably too much anger in the end about Trump promoting election denying candidates. And so you ended up with, instead of a wave, I mean, you know, people have said it's a ripple, whatever you want to call it, you ended up with this very minor move to the Republican Party. And that did hit New York hard because New York had had this redistricting process that the courts invalidated. And in invalidating it, they left several Democratic districts vulnerable. And then you have a few districts in California. I mean, the, the Democrats have so many seats in California that it's very rare that you don't have one or two swing states in the Central Valley or in the Orange County, San Diego area. And it could come down to, you know, a handful of seats, as you said, in California, a handful of seats in New York. And the other big one is Florida, where the Republicans just ran roughshod over the Democrats at every level of the um, political process, governor's race, congressional races, state races and so on. Um, 
and you know it's interesting but i don't think the fact that the house if and when it goes republican goes republican because of a few seats in california and new york i think actually that's a statement more of the strength of the democratic party nationally than it is a strength of weakness within the democratic party because what it meant is they bucked a 40 or 50 year historical trend that says in midterm elections, the incumbent party gets clobbered. And this time around, the Democrats didn't get clobbered. They suffered a few seats loss in Congress. Looks like they're going to hold on to the Senate. And at the state level, they did really, really well. So why is it then, Sasha Bramsky, that you say that the Democratic coalition in the Western states is brittle? Uh, there are a few unique things going on, uh, less so in California, where the coalition held fairly nicely, though Los Angeles is going to be an interesting thing to watch, the, the mayor's race in Los Angeles. But the area where it's particularly brittle is Nevada, where Harry Reid's carefully built up coalition seems to have broken down a little bit. Now, you know, there's still 20 percent of the vote outstanding in Nevada. It's certainly possible that um, Senator Cortez Masto hangs on, uh, less likely that the governor hangs on. And certainly you're seeing um, very, very close statewide races, including for the secretary of state, where an election denier called Jim Marchant has a plausible shot at becoming the secretary of state there. Um, you're seeing a breakdown of that coalition a little bit um, in Arizona, where there was this tremendous get out the vote effort in 2020 to turn Arizona blue. And it worked for the presidential election. The, the Electoral College votes went to Biden and it worked in the Senate races. Um, this time around, it looks like it will work again in the Senate race where where um, Kelly is out polling Blake Masters. But it's entirely possible when all the votes are counted that the election denier, Carrie Lake, ends up as governor of the state. Uh, why did it break down? I think at least in part, the um, governor, the Democratic gubernatorial candidate, Katie Hobbs, ran a really mediocre campaign. And she didn't successfully engage with a critical mass of voters. And she made this, to me, unfathomable decision not to debate Carrie Lake. And she said it was because she didn't want to get into a food fight with Carrie Lake. But voters expect a debate. And when she didn't turn up for the debate, it just gave a freebie. It was a gift to Carrie Lake and she took advantage of it. Um, but the other state to look at is Oregon. And Oregon, for two months, it looked like a Republican might be able to sneak into the governorship in Oregon in a three-way race. Um, now it's looking less likely. Most of the votes have been tabulated. It looks like the Democrat uh, Tina Kotek is going to end up a little bit ahead. But the reason that the Democratic candidate was so vulnerable there, I think, is real dissatisfaction about what's happened in Portland over the last few years. The massive increase in homelessness, the significant increases in crime in Portland, uh, the sense that quality of life issues just were being ignored by outgoing Governor Katie Brown. And I think that really undermined the Democratic message, because on these core quality of life issues, in Oregon, the Democrats were seen to be absent. And I think they paid a price electorally. They, they may have escaped paying a big price. They may have escaped losing the governorship. But I think they lost quite a lot of voters there. And that's something that they need to be aware of going forward because coalitions shift. There's no guarantee that just because a state is deep blue one day, it will stay deep blue the next. Well, Katie Hobbs is definitely a mystery. She seemed to, as a candidate, she reminded me of the disastrous candidate Mandela Barnes in in Wisconsin, who just didn't seem to want the job. He didn't have any fire. He was just absolutely passive and ran the worst commercials in political history and got beaten by the most beatable Republican out there, Ron Johnson. 
But he, he, but he can- did. Though, to be fair to Mandela Barnes, he closed the gap significantly in the last two weeks of the election. Um, I have a good friend who lives in Madison, a very, very good political reporter, John Nichols for The Nation. Um, and, you know, we were talking yesterday about it. And he said to me, he thought that, you know, had the race gone on another two or three or four days, Barnes probably would have caught up to Johnson because all the momentum in the last part of that race was going Mandela Barnes's way. But I think you're right that, you know, there are these candidates who, for whatever reasons, never really caught fire. And their message, you know, may have been the grown up in the room message, but it never resonated with a critical number of voters. And I think Katie Hobbs fits that profile in Arizona that, you know, she marketed herself as the calm, collected, the adult in the room person who was sort of thinking about big problems and not posturing and not scapegoating and not doing all the things that Carrie Lake and Donald Trump do. Uh, The problem is Carrie Lake's very telegenic. She knows how to use the camera. She knows how to um, speak to a large crowd. She's a good amphitheater politician. And it provided an opening for Carrie Lake to essentially set the terms of the debate. Um, And Arizona's always got room for that. You know, it's it's a weird state. It's got a lot of progressives, but it's also got a lot of really conservative figures. Um, It's a place Barry Goldwater came out of. It's the place the John Birch Society took root in the 60s. It's you know, a place where routinely the state GOP throws up far right figures like Wendy Rogers, who's a state representative who addresses white nationalist rallies. Um, it threw, threw up Congressman Paul Gosar, who's also a white nationalist. So there's no shortage of extremism for a candidate like Carrie Lake to tap into. She tapped into it well. Um, now, you know, that doesn't mean she's going to be the next governor. The, the race is so, so close in Arizona. It's possible that Katie Hobbs will squeak out this race, but she should have won it in a blowout because Carrie Lake was so easy to portray as an extremist and she should have been marginalized. She had so many Republicans who were so uneasy about her candidacy and Katie Hobbs should have been able to tap into that better. Well, indeed, didn't uh, Sasha Abramsky, didn't the Democrats put money into Lake's campaign? You know, I've heard those rumors. I don't know if that's true or Uh not. But certainly there were races around the country where the Democrats made a strategic bet that if they promoted the extremists during the primary season, New Hampshire would be a case in point with General Bolduc. If they used sort of their weight and influence to push the extremist candidate in the primary, their bet was they'd have a better chance in the general election. You know, it was a desperately dangerous gamble. I I think it was an immoral gamble. It paid off in places like New Hampshire. There's no guarantee it will play off in Arizona. And if it doesn't, and if Carrie Lake ends up the governor, she's going to be one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, voice for the sort of Trumpian far right in American politics. She may be more important as a voice at some point than Donald Trump himself, who has faded magnificently in the last few days with the um, collapse of so many of his candidates in, in this midterm election. But Carrie Lake is if she's if she's the governor, Carrie Lake is going to go places. She will have a huge national platform at that point. Well, clearly there's something wrong with the electorate in Arizona because Paul Gosar, I think he what won ninety nine percent of the vote. He, he, I think he was in an uncontested uncontested seat. There race. Are a number right. of, there are a number of districts in Arizona, uh, more of them state districts for the assembly and for, sorry for the House and the state Senate. But there are a number of uncontested districts. Now, my my memory is Paul Gosar was in one, so the ninety nine percent vote doesn't really say anything other than the fact there was nobody to vote against Paul Gosar. Right. But that's in itself pretty telling and depressing. 
Yeah. And, you know, there are certainly areas of Arizona. It's not the whole state by any any stretch of the imagination, but there are areas of Arizona where there are these pockets of far right extremism. Um, you know, to be fair, it's not just Arizona. You see it in Colorado, for example, with Lauren Bobart, who may or may not have lost her um, congressional race. Um, last I looked, she was 0.1 percent ahead after having trailed for the entire election. Um, but there are these pockets of extremism. You see it in Georgia, too, with Marjorie Taylor Greene's district. Um, so I don't think Arizona is unique in that respect. Mm -hmm. But there certainly is a sort of deep and dishonorable lineage in Arizona of extremist candidates doing fairly well. So let's turn to Nevada, which is very key, because we can, I think, safely assume that Mark Kelly will beat Blake Masters in Arizona. But if Cortez Masto ekes out a narrow victory against Adam Laxalt, who's a, another Trump election denier, that will make the race in Georgia so much better for the Democrats because, in effect, Republicans would be voting, holding their nose and voting for Herschel Walker in order for the Republicans to gain the Senate. But if the Democrats have already gained the Senate by the the December 6th runoff election in, in Georgia, then it won't be such an issue. So do you agree with that, uh, Sasha? Yeah, uh, yeah uh, absolutely. Herschel Walker is a desperately, desperately flawed candidate. He is so beset by personal scandal. He's so dishonest. He's He's a huckster in the worst sort of charlatan mode in American politics. He's a kind of Trumpian figure. And an awful lot of Georgians didn't want to vote for him. But as you said, he was seen as the sort of only viable pathway to a Senate majority. So they held their nose and they voted for him. If the Democratic senator in Nevada manages to eke out a, a victory over the next few days as the vote count continues, well, then the Democrats have a majority with or without Georgia. Georgia becomes a far less important race because it's no longer the linchpin race. And at that point, you can see a scenario where a large number of Republicans just sit it out. They never liked Herschel Walker to begin with. They voted for him reluctantly in the first round. And if he's a nominee in a contest that no longer matters for control of the Senate, you can see a situation where his support collapses. Um, the other thing to bear in mind is four weeks is a long time in politics. And in Herschel Walker's case, it's an eternity because every day during the campaign, another scandal came out. So you can assume that over the coming week there's, or coming three weeks, there's going to be a rolling series of allegations about Herschel Walker and his personal life and his dishonesty and his mental stability and so on and so forth. None of that's going to play well. The longer this race goes on, the more Herschel Walker looks to be a damaged, flawed candidate. Um, so I do think what happens in Nevada is absolutely critical because you could see a collapse in Herschel Walker's support if it doesn't matter in terms of controlling the Senate. So what do we know, though, about this key race then in Nevada for the Senate? There was a press conference today from the, um, the head of the election board in um, Clark County who didn't make a lot of sense because we're told it's 110,000 outstanding votes. And he said there are 55,000 outstanding votes, which was refuted by other people that I, you know, like John Ralston, who seems to be well connected in the state of Nevada. Obviously, it's an uphill climb. At this point, we're speaking around one o'clock Pacific time today. I think at this point, Cortez Masto is, is 15,000 or 16,000 votes behind so if it's 50,000, then it's going to be hard for her to make it up. But if it's 110,000, then there's a chance, isn't there, that she could, she may only win by a few hundred at that, at that, but at least she's got a chance. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the latest numbers now and the latest numbers that I see say that 83 percent of the votes are in and that she's about 16,000 votes behind. So if there's still nearly 20 percent of the votes outstanding or 17 percent of the votes outstanding, you're looking at at least 150,000 votes outstanding. Uh, the bulk of those are from Clark County. Now, you know, Cortez Masto is winning in Clark County, but she's not winning by a blowout margin. She's winning by a five percent margin at the moment in the Clark County votes that are still to be in the Clark County votes that have already been counted. The other area with a lot of votes outstanding is Washoe County. And again, she's winning Washoe County, but by 0.2%. It's, it's, it's hardly as if it's a massive margin skewing in her direction. So it is an uphill climb. I spoke to pollsters um, who specialize in Nevada and Arizona yesterday, and they said it was an absolute knife edge contest and was too close to call. Um, the New York Times, I think Nate Cohen thinks it's marginally more likely that she wins. I think the New York Times best guess was that she ekes out a victory by about 0.3 or 0.4%. Um, but it's clearly going to come down to the wire. And as we've seen in the last few election cycles, Nevada and Arizona, for various reasons, and I wouldn't claim to understand the ins and outs of it, count votes very slowly. So you're going to have several days here when the last few votes, the provisional votes, the votes that are mailed, mailed before Election Day, but didn't arrive until after Election Day. All those votes have to be counted and they have to be counted by hand. And it takes ages. So it's entirely possible that we're not going to know that Senate result until next week. Um, but it's certainly it's unlikely at the moment. Adam Laxalt's up by 1.8%. It's unlikely that he's going to win if he does win by 1.8%. It's much more likely it's going to come down to the wire and be a matter of a few thousand votes in either direction. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Sasha Abramsky, back to the House. Since we're waiting on congressional races here in the state of California, uh, and that will determine, you know, the Democrats still have an outside chance of of winning the House, but it would only be by one or two seats, seems less likely. It seems more likely that the Republicans will will win the House, but probably, what, by between five and ten seats, which I think will make it pretty ungovernable for Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, I think you have to assume, looking at the numbers, that McCarthy is going to be the next Speaker of the House. Or you, let me rephrase that. You have to assume, looking at the numbers, the Republicans will have a small majority. It will probably be about the same size as the Democratic majority now. The difference is Pelosi has shown and has a long track record of being very, very effective at holding her caucus in line. They have internal arguments. They have all kinds of debates between the progressive caucus and the more moderate wings and so on. But at the end of the day, Pelosi was capable of holding her caucus together. There's no evidence McCarthy can do that. He's not nearly as skillful a politician as Pelosi. He's totally beholden to the Trumpian and even you know farther than Trumpian right of the congressional caucus. He's empowered people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who have no interest in compromise and really are all about the theatrics. Uh, Taylor Greene, Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, and so on. They don't have the faintest ability or inclination to govern, but they do have the ability and inclination to cause spectacle, to sort of do a sort of right-wing version of the attentat. And so I think what you're going to see is McCarthy will probably win the speakership because the far right doesn't have the ability to foist an alternative on the party. And he'll then find it increasingly difficult to do anything other than posture politics. So they'll hold a whole bunch of investigatory investigatory hearings. They'll, you know, 
subpoena Hunter S. Biden, I doubt very much they'll try to impeach Joe Biden. I think that would collapse their popularity almost overnight, given the results of this election. Um, but they're going to try and make life miserable for Biden and stymie his legislative agenda. Um, what they're not going to have the ability to do is foist legislation on the country. They're not going to have the ability to actually change the country through passage of legislation. Um, and I suspect that McCarthy will be a two-year speaker, that he'll have this almost ungovernable majority, he'll have this far-right caucus that you know, becomes increasingly toxic to the broader mass of American voters. And I suspect in 2024, they'll be booted out on their rear ends because they're not going to do anything in the next two years that shows that they're qualified for actual governance. Well, Sasha Abramsky, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thanks again. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Sasha Abramsky, who writes regularly for The Nation, is the author of several books, including Inside Obama's Brain, Breadline USA, American Furies, The American Way of Poverty, and most recently, Little Wonder, the fabulous story of Lottie Dodd, the world's first female sports superstar. And he has an article at The Nation, Republicans are big losers, but they may still be a threat. We're going to take a brief station break and back addressing the other big story to emerge from the midterm elections other than the absence of the red wave, and that is how brazen Republican gerrymandering is the main reason the GOP will probably take the House. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David Daly, a senior fellow at Fair Vote and the author of Rat Eft, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy, which helped spark a drive to reform gerrymandering. Dave's second book, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy, chronicles the victories and defeats in state efforts to reform elections and uphold voting rights. He's a digital media fellow at the Wilson Center for the Humanities and the former editor-in-chief of Salon.com and the former CEO and publisher of the Connecticut News Project. And he has an article at The Nation, The GOP's Bid to Claim a Rigged House Majority. Voters repudiated the GOP congressional agenda, court sanctions, gerrymanders made sure it didn't matter. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Daly. Thanks for having me back on, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, David. And this is the the other story of the election, right? The big story has been the absence of a red wave, but gerrymandering certainly worked. It worked incredibly well for the Republicans in DeSantis's Florida, where they picked up four House seats. It certainly did. Um, the big story of this election is that there was no red wave. And the second piece of that is that Republicans took control of the U.S. House anyway in a 50-50 year. And how did they do that? Well, they did it by winning the redistricting wars, not only last decade with maps in state legislatures and swing states that endured for a full decade, but they also won the redistricting wars that followed the 2020 census in just enough states, and they were ruthless enough in just enough states, like Florida, 
like Ohio, and they had several big assists from their robed conservative allies on the U.S. Supreme Court, which time and again uh, made it easier uh, for state legislatures uh, in conservative uh, states to draw tilted rigged lines that advantage the GOP. And in the state of Wisconsin, which is probably the least democratic state in the in the nation now, along with Florida, they almost pulled off a coup where they would have had a supermajority in the state legislature, which would have meant that the Democratic governor, who just got reelected, would absolutely be powerless. But apparently they're hanging on by a thread, just one vote in, uh, I think, in the lower chamber of the legislature. When you think of Wisconsin, you think of one of the closest states in America. And indeed, it has been. It's deeply purple. It has gone back and forth at the presidential level in 2012, 2016, 2020. Um, And yet, the the state legislature and the congressional delegation in Wisconsin have had no swing now. They have not been responsive to wave elections ever since Republicans redrew those lines after the 2010 elections. So you have a situation in Wisconsin like you did in 2018, for example, when Democrats in the state um, win all of the statewide offices, win the U.S. Senate race, win the popular vote statewide for the assembly, by upwards of 200,000 votes, and yet Republicans hold on to 63, 64% of the seats in the assembly. And then they use those essentially unearned majorities um, that they have quote unquote won to enact legislation that the voters in Wisconsin do not want. There is effectively a full abortion ban in the purple state of Wisconsin because there's a law on the books from the 1840s that went back into effect after the Supreme Court overturned Roe in the Dobbs case. And polls show that something like 70% of Wisconsinites would like that law to be removed. The Democratic governor of the state tried to call a special session to have that happen. And the conservative legislature gaveled in and out in less than a minute. They know that because of gerrymandering, they are insulated from the ballot box. They're insulated from the will of the people. It's deeply un-American, but it's happening right now in Wisconsin, in North Carolina, in Ohio, in many other American states, something that we would cringe at uh, uh, if it was happening in any other country. And before the elections in Alabama, where there are seven congressional districts and a 27% black population, they altered the maps, or they tried through the courts to alter the maps to have at least two districts with black voters with a chance to have representation in two of the seven districts, which again is a, a pretty paltry compromise. But the federal three-judge panel filled with Trump appointees, demanded a new map. But then when the case reached the United States Supreme Court on appeal, the conservative majority blocked that ruling over the objections even of Chief Justice John Roberts, who's responsible for gutting the Voting Rights Act. So, When you've gone too far for John Roberts, (laughs) something is wrong. 
Well, why is it, though, that this kind of criminality, larceny in plain sight, why stealing, it is stealing, why is it acceptable? Why isn't there more of an outcry? You're right. I mean, it should not be acceptable. It is criminal. It is it is cheating. It is effectively legally trying to disallow the will of the people from being heard and from being heard in the institutions of government that are supposed to be most responsive and closest to the voters, their state legislature and their rep in the U.S. House. Gerrymandering, unfortunately, has been a feature of our political system ever since the start. As long as we've had politicians, they've tried to draw lines in ways that benefit themselves and their party. But really, it became turbocharged uh, after 2010 with the the advent of uh, sophisticated mapping software and granular data and powerful computer programs that allow politicians to go up one street and down the other and 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 really choose their own voters with just uh, surgical precision. And Republicans really understood the value of this and embraced it as a strategy after the t- 2008 election when uh, Barack Obama really built a multiracial coalition to become the nation's first black president and Democrats won super majorities in the U.S. Senate. Um, and Republicans understood they needed a path back to power, and they recognized that redistricting could supply that for them. They've gotten a huge assist over the course of the last decade in this um, from the federal judiciary and from the John Roberts Supreme Court that every single opportunity that this court has had to side on behalf of voters and majority rule they have sided instead with those who would entrench one party minority rule in this country. And you could see the impact of decision after decision, a decade's worth of decisions by this court in handing effectively Republicans control of the U.S. House after what was a jump a ball election. I don't think it's dissimilar from the way that the Republicans handed the presidency. Uh, the, the the Republican justices on the court handed the presidency to George Bush in a jump ball election after 2000. And the decisions that this court has made in, in the Shelby County case that you mentioned, but also in the redistricting cases, uh, Rucho versus Common Cause that closed the federal courts to gerrymandering claims in 2019, um, and the decisions that you referred to for, from Alabama that um, effectively nullified Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and allowed conservative legislatures across the South to dilute minority voters at will. Um, it made the difference on Tuesday. Well, I don't understand, though, again, how this is happening in plain sight. And is there any counter strategy? I mean, one of the things that's so alarming about the possibility that the Republicans could take the Senate, even though it looks like the Democrats have still got a pretty good chance of holding the Senate. If they lose the Senate, then Biden's not going to get one more judge on the federal bench, right? McConnell would block him. I think that's right. That's a given, right? Yes, it is. So this is what is going on. And and what you pointed out, uh, David Daly, in your article 
at the nation, the GOP bid to claim a rigged House majority. Voters repudiated the GOP congressional agenda. Court sanctioned gerrymanders made sure it didn't matter. You point out that the essentially what the strategy is that even if there's redress from the courts or at least suits from the Democrats to level the playing field, the courts just stall it and they stall it and stall it and stall it. That's how it works, that they let the conservative courts drag it out. Walk us through some of the examples of how long it's been between decisions to redress gerrymandering and when they finally become law. The courts are not only not coming to save us, the courts are actively on the side of those who are working to erode American democracy. And Republicans understand that it is really easy to push these cases into into the courts and slow the litigation down so that they can take and claim a, an election cycle, maybe two, on these maps before the courts do anything about it. So take a look at Florida, for example. Back in, in 2010, voters in Florida passed state constitutional amendments that tried to put an end to gerrymandering in the state. They said, you cannot draw maps that favor or disfavor any political party. You've got to have a transparent process. The ink was not even dry on this constitutional amendment before Republican strategists and operatives started scheming an end run around it. And all of this came out over the course of the subsequent trial. Uh, a, A state judge found that Republicans mounted a secret, shadowy um, redistricting process in the margins that was parallel to the public process, that they designed maps in private and snuck them into the public uh, under fake Gmail addresses that they made in the names of their former college interns. It's a crazy story. It's something out of a political novel. And Florida State Supreme Court eventually overturned those maps and required a new one to be drawn. But that didn't happen until 2015. So Republicans got away with an unconstitutional map in 2012 and 2014 until it was finally undone five years later. And that's the kind of thing that we're seeing this cycle as well. Voters did something similar in the state of Ohio, where they they passed a constitutional amendment back in 2018, trying to ensure that the process this year would be fair and nonpartisan. You know, spoiler alert, it didn't exactly happen that way. And Ohio's state Supreme Court took a look at the state and congressional maps, not once, not twice, but seven times, and sent them back and said, these are unconstitutional maps. But the lawless legislators in charge of this process uh, simply refused to obey court orders. And the, the election that was held in Ohio, and like this ought to be leading the news in a functional democracy with a news media that focused on the real story. The election in Ohio on Tuesday was held on maps that the state Supreme Court called unconstitutional, and Republican officials went ahead with anyway. 
Wow. Well, just in the last few minutes, though, it isn't it quite easy and possible to just get rid of gerrymandering altogether at the national level and that one of the great tragedies of this Biden administration has been the fact that Senator Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinemas have stymied the possibility when the Democrats had that rare trifecta where they controlled the House, Senate and the White House. They had an opportunity uh, to put an end to partisan gerrymandering. But it never happened, right, because of these two refusing to budge on the filibuster. I think that's exactly right. I think we will rue the Democrats' inability to get anything done on partisan gerrymandering and voting rights in this small window that they had to accomplish it. And they failed because of Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, who effectively put this arcane Senate rule that has been used to protect and defend against civil rights legislation in this country for years, the filibuster, um, they valued the filibuster over voting rights, and um, they picked the filibuster over democracy. And we are all going to pay the price for Manchin and Cinema's uh, stubbornness and short-sightedness uh, and, frankly, anti-democratic tendencies um, for maybe generations to come. Well, but just in closing, isn't it true that in 2024, what just happened in Florida is going to be happening in Ohio and North Carolina? I think that's right. Um, I think that what you also had happen on Tuesday, and this also has gone a little bit uncovered, but Ohio and North Carolina state Supreme Courts tilted hard right on Tuesday in statewide elections. So what I think is going to happen is you're going to see mid-decade redraws of the congressional maps in both of those states now, and they're going to become even more uh, Republican-leaning in 2024. And uh, Democrats managed to make a couple of pickups in North Carolina. They won a seat in Ohio. Um, I imagine that those seats uh, are going to, to be drawn quite differently in 2024. And so if there is another jump ball 50-50 election in 2024, uh, the bar that uh, uh, Democrats will have to surpass in order to win a majority of seats is going to be raised, unfortunately, even higher. Well, David Daly, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Anytime. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with David Daly, who's a senior fellow for Fair Vote and the author of Rat Eft the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy, which helped spark a drive to reform gerrymandering. Dave's second book, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy, chronicles the victories and defeats in state efforts to reform elections and uphold voting rights. He's a digital media fellow at the Wilson Center for the Humanities and the former editor-in-chief of Salon.com and the former CEO and publisher of the Connecticut News Project. And he has an article at The Nation, the GOP's bid to claim a rigged House majority. Voters repudiated the GOP congressional agenda. Court sanctioned gerrymanders made sure it didn't matter. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org. 
where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by hand.